Today, do me a favor, take your Bibles and join me in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, this is the quintessential Christmas passage right here. You want to read the Christmas story, this is where you go. If you just want the straight nativity, you go to Luke 2 on Christmas morning. I don't know if your family is like my family. If so, uh, then your tradition may be to gather in the living room around the tree and before your kids, if you got them, shred one square inch of wrapping paper. You might open this text right here, Luke 2, because that's what we do in our family. Before anybody opens a present, we read about the greatest present ever given. And we turn to Luke 2 and we read this story. Now, normally... When you read Luke 2, you focus on the three primary protagonists of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. But as you're aware, if you've been coming here, we have been looking in this series at what we call the cast-off characters of Christmas. We're looking at the B-listers. We're looking at the supporting players in this story. These are the, these are the, the, the individuals that don't make the front of the Christmas card. Okay, And we're looking at them to gain some insights, to go a little deeper, to, to find things that we maybe haven't seen before in this story pertaining to the, the great theological themes of the sovereignty of God, of the purpose of God's plan, uh, and some personal application that we can draw from the lives of some of these supporting players. If, we, if you were with us last week, we started on Sunday by looking at the Old Testament prophets. You never think about them when you think about Christmas and everything that they prophesied regarding the, the birth of the coming Messiah uh, fulfilled by Jesus on this, this lonesome night in Bethlehem. And then on Wednesday, we continued this series and we looked at the Holy Spirit and his role in the birth of the Messiah because it was, it was a, a divine conception that took place and he was instrumental in that. Well, in our story today, we're going to look at some nameless individuals that the society of their day had placed in a very specific box. They'd been very narrowly defined. Uh, and the text here seems to say that God disagrees with the way that society had defined these individuals. He's saying, I'm gonna elevate you. I'm going to do something special with you. I've got something else in mind for you other than what society has determined. And so that's what we're gonna look at. But I want to give you the context. So before we uh, pray and, and begin the series, let's take a look here at the context. Join me in verse one. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so what we are seeing described here, this registration, this is a census. It's a census. How many of you have ever participated in, in a national census? Okay, that happens every 10 years or so to determine the population of a nation. This is not a census of a single nation. This is a census of the entire known world. And it is decreed by the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, and he was not the ruler of a single country. He was the ruler of the whole world. Quite literally. You ever seen Titanic? And Leo DiCaprio, he's on the bow of that ship and he, he shouts what? I'm the king of the world! Well, no, Caesar Augustus literally was the king of the world. 
And so he decrees that this census be taken. And under this, every person uh, under his rule must be tabulated. The head of every household must travel to their ancestral hometown to be taxed and to be counted. And that is what sends one Joseph of Nazareth, this humble carpenter, and his very young wife, a girl named Mary, to this town, Bethlehem, which happens to be the town where his ancestor, none other than King David, was himself born. And what awaits them there is more than the mere taking of a census. What awaits them is a date with destiny. And that is what makes this story so fun and so amazing and interesting is that this emperor, Caesar Augustus, has decreed this in order that he could feed his own ego. You see, he was a narcissist. It was not enough that he's the ruler of the whole world. He's got to know exactly how many people are under his rule. He's going to count them all and make that known that all may marvel at the vastness of his empire. And yet what he does not realize, the irony is that he is but a pawn in the hand of a sovereign, almighty God. God is merely using this narcissistic ruler to bring about the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You see, God, as we saw last week, had, had spoken through his prophets that the Messiah, his only son, would be born in this city, David, uh, David's hometown of Bethlehem, that one day in that town, there would be born another king, but this king would be unlike any other king that had ever come before. This king is going to be the savior of a people, and one day this king is going to be uh, the ruler of an empire, of a, of a mighty kingdom that's going to dwarf the kingdom of Caesar Augustus. In fact, he's going to make the kingdom of Augustus look like basically Alamance County. All right? That's what we're talking about right here. And so we see that when they get to Bethlehem, Mary will give birth, fulfilling the first part of this prophecy, the Messiah's birth in this exact location. Look at verse six. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that is as far as many people's reading of the nativity story gets. When they gather on Christmas with their family, if they read the story, that's about as far as they go. But there's more, because this is the greatest news that would ever be revealed to mankind. And to whom does God reveal this news first? Who is the first recipient of, of the news that the Son of God has been born? Look at verse 8, it says, and in the same region there were shepherds. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. God announces as proud papas do the birth of his son. And who does he choose to receive this news first? Does he go to the scholars of Jerusalem? No. Does he go to the philosophers of Athens? No. Does he go to the mighty generals of Rome? Uh-uh. He goes to some no-name no account, no reputation, no value, shepherds. And this is remarkable because in those days, shepherds were despised. You could not find 
uh, someone on, on a lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder. These shepherds were so looked down upon. They were considered unskilled, uneducated, uncouth, untrained. They were thought to be uh, often uh, the runt of the litter. They were considered to be dirty. They smelled of livestock. They were grimy faced. Uh, uh, Their word was no good. They were untrustworthy. A shepherd wasn't even allowed in a court of law because you couldn't believe a word that they said. That was the stereotype. Why would God come to such a people to announce the birth of his son when the culture has told them You stay in your lane. You are down there on the bottom of the food chain and that's where we have placed you and that's where you must remain. Well, what is God saying? That's what we're gonna talk about. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time in the word today. Lord, may we marvel at what you have placed here for us in this text. May we marvel as Caesar Augustus intended the world to marvel at his empire. We marvel at your mighty word that is inerrant, that is from you, it is true, and may we find something of value and application in this text today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look today, big overarching thought in your notes, when the world tries to define your existence. There are a few things that you got to remember. These shepherds uh, had been defined by the world in which they live. And the world still loves to define us. The world still loves to assign value to different stations of life. You know, this job description matters, this one doesn't. This, this position matters, this one doesn't. It wasn't that long ago, the government said it was perfectly acceptable for all these different types of institutions and places to shut down. They tend to squawk a little bit when you, when you say that the government might need to shut down for a little bit. It's neither here nor there, I suppose. But I remember a few years ago, my youngest son, uh, Grayson. By the way, I'm going, to, I'm going to see my family today. Today. Almost been a month. I'm so excited. I've, I, you know, after the second service, I've got a gassed up getaway car right out here. So if I'm going to say something controversial, this is the day. Um, my youngest son used to love it. When, uh, when, he was, when he was a little tyke, and he still loves it, uh, at bedtime when dad would come in and I would just lie down next to him on the bed and we'd just lie there and we'd, just, we'd talk. You know, I'd ask him questions about his day and he'd tell me jokes. And uh, the way that this would work is if I guessed the punchline to the jokes, I got to tickle him. And he loved that. And he's 11 and he still loves dad to come in and spend some time talking to him at night. But I remember when he had just started elementary school, there was one time I came in and I had a question for him because I, I, I had heard that in his class they were talking about what they wanted to be when they grew up. And they were drawing pictures of these different professions. And so I came in and I said, Grayson, why don't you tell dad, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, well, it's between two things. He said, either an astronaut or a bus driver. <laughs> and, and I almost said something. I almost said something, but then I stopped. I almost, I almost encouraged the astronaut route, but then I stopped. And, and I thought to myself, who am I to say you shouldn't be a bus driver? Well, when I was a kid, one of my favorite people was my bus driver. And he was a godly man. He was a Christian man. He had a big impact on me when I was growing up. You know what? I'm still friends with that man. On Facebook, we still are connected. And so I, I just kind of kept that to myself. Of course, it's several years later now, and he wants to be about six different things. 
But the world loves to place different levels of value on different things. And so this is what they were doing in this instant. But why is it that God is coming to these shepherds with such significant historic news? I think that there are a few different reasons. And I want you to look at your notes because number one in your notes that you need to remember when society tries to define us is that God uses the lowly. God uses the lowly. I think God comes to these shepherds because God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He has always done this throughout scripture. You remember who was a shepherd boy? King David. When he was younger, he was a shepherd boy and he was the runt of the litter. He was by far the least impressive out of all of Jesse's boys. And he didn't even compare to the king of Israel at the time, King Saul. King Saul was, was tall. King Saul was, was uh, handsome. The people had clamored for Saul to be their king. But you know what? It wasn't Saul that slew Goliath. It was the little guy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Pastor Scott, are you resonating with this text? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. But you know what? The, the, the story of the little guy getting the victory is not the story of the little guy getting the glory. Because who is it that gets the glory? It's the Lord God. Because God uses the weak things of the world to, to accomplish his purposes. And we see other stories. The homebody Jacob being elevated over his big strapping brother, the huntsman, Esau. Gideon commanded an army of thousands. God said, that's too big. You got to pare that down. They whittle it down to about 300. God goes in, slays the Midianites, gets the victory. We see uh, Joshua. He's got a ragtag band of nomadic Israelite soldiers. They come up against this impenetrable impenetrable fortress called Jericho. God says, don't attack it. Just march around the city seven times. I'll take care of the rest. And the walls come tumbling down. He uses the weak things. All of these people are used by God so that others can look at the aftermath, look at these scenarios and say, there is no other conclusion to draw except that God did this. This is of God. I think another reason that God comes to these shepherds first is because they have the job description of God himself. God is a shepherd. He's the shepherd of his people. Israel, he looks after them. They are precious to him. He watches over his flock. And these shepherds, from April to November, they bring their flocks down out of the hills. They come down from, from where there is no natural barrier against predators, and they bring them down into the pasture and they take turns and they have shifts and they watch over these sheep and every sheep is precious. Every sheep is important. Every single one and that's how God is. He watches over every single one. Not a sparrow falls that doesn't catch his eye. And so he goes to these men who do what he does uh, to the point of his own son who would call himself the great shepherd, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep, amen? And then I think that he comes to these shepherds because there's something prophetic about what they do. Why is every sheep precious? Why is every sheep valuable? Because these are the sheep that are gonna be sold throughout the year for different feasts, different festivals, including Passover. These are the sheep that would become the sacrifices 
atoning sin, or symbolizing the atoning of sin for the nation, their blood shed uh, to symbolize forgiveness of sin. Scripture teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And all of the sacrifices of the old Jewish system of the law in the Old Testament pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. It's no doubt that God came to these shepherds first for a reason. And then I want you to notice what happens here in verse nine. Take a look. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, why were they filled with fear? Why, in particular, were they filled with fear? Well, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around this angel. That's that's a proper term. Uh, The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It appeared in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, uh, above the Ark of the Covenant. Before that, it was in the tabernacle. Now, it hasn't been seen in Israel in some time, not not since the days of the prophet Jeremiah. And God spoke through that prophet to the people, to the king of Judah. You guys have fallen into idolatry. If you don't repent, I'm gonna take my glory from you. And they, they persisted in their idolatry. What happened? God removed the glory from the land. Babylon sweeps in like a flood, destroys that city, levels that temple, takes those people into bondage 70 years. They come back eventually. They rebuild the city. They rebuild the temple. But you know what's missing? The glory of God. It had never returned. Ichabod was written over the door. The glory has departed. This glory has not been seen in Israel for centuries. And now, all of a sudden, here it is appearing in the night sky over Bethlehem, beheld by these obscure shepherds who are witnessing what what hasn't been witnessed in centuries. And then in verse 10, it says, the angel said to them, the angel says, fear not. Have you ever noticed when an angel appears in scripture, nine times out of 10, the angel's saying, fear not. Don't be afraid. You ever wonder why an angel is constantly saying, don't be afraid? My theory, angels are scary. I think angels must just be terrifying, especially if you've never seen one before and they catch you off guard, but in their natural state, I don't think they look like these fat babies with wings that you see, okay? I don't think they look like Roma Downey on Touched by an Angel, all right? No. You read Ezekiel and you read the description of angels there and you tell me that they're not scary. And so now I realize they could take other forms too. They appear as in, in almost a human manner on occasion. But I believe that these shepherds were seeing them in their true state and they were struck with fear. And so he says, fear not. Add to that the, the pure unfiltered glory of God is surrounding this angel. And so they drop to their knees and he says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've heard it a bunch of times. I don't want to skip over this because I think there's something very important here. What do the angels say they bring? Good news. Listen, is there a word that we use in Christian circles and in our reading of the Bible that means good news? There absolutely is. It's the word gospel. Gospel means good news. In the Greek, it's evangelion. What does that sound like? We get our word evangelism from that. Good news. 
That's what gospel means. He says, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now that, that entire phrase, my friends, is a subtle dig. It's a slight at, at, the, at the power and the authority of Rome. Let me explain. There is an archaeological find called the Praney Calendar Inscription. Praney, P-R-E-I-N-E, the Praney calendar inscription, dates to 9 B.C. It was a tablet unearthed in Greece, very old, and the way it reads, it reads that Caesar Augustus, the very dude (laughs) that decreed this census, that, that he was to be celebrated as a deity every year on the date of his birth. The inscription reads like this. It says, the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. Are you catching the contrast between this inscription and what the angel spoke to those prophets? The beginning of the good tidings. Augustus' birthday was said to be the the beginning of good tidings, good news for the world. Look at what Mark 1.1 says. It says the beginning of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the beginning of the good news, not Augustus. So this is remarkable. The tablet declares that Augustus' birthday equals good tidings for the world. The angel says on Jesus' birthday, (laughs) I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, the whole world. And so this is a dig at the authority of Rome and of Caesar. Angels, it turns out, have a rather dry sense of humor. You see, I think this angel would have been a rather snarky uh, little sniper on social media today. I really do. And so uh, that's what this is. And what this tells us is number three in your notes that God has no regard for human position. He, he doesn't care how, how big we think we are. All these offices that are so mighty and and magnificent in our minds are just puny human manifestations of our own ego. We're all so self-important. We think we are all that in a bag of chips. God says, not compared to me. Not compared to my plan. And he's saying through this angel, hey, Augustus, it's not your birthday that's the good news for the world. It's my son's birthday that is the good news for the world. And by the way, it's the good news for all people. What people? All people. There's no favoritism here. It's everyone in existence. You know, I think, I think the sin in the day of these shepherds was that the culture devalued those on the lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder and they valued the upper crust. I think today uh, that is still true in some quarters. I also think you can sin in the opposite direction. I think there is a craze right now. There's an obsession with looking at, at folks who, are, uh, who fit into a category of, of being uh, underprivileged and we elevate that as some sort of a noble status and we demean people who are perceived to have more privilege. You understand? I think that society now is obsessed with putting us into one of two categories. You're either an oppressor or you are oppressed. And there are subcategories of being oppressed. And the more subcategories of oppression that you fit into and how they overlap and intersect, the more moral authority you have. 
Folks, that is an unbiblical philosophy. Do you understand me? That is not found in scripture. It's wrong, and it's not in our text here today. God did not choose these shepherds because they were oppressed and therefore had some virtue by, by virtue of their oppression. No, he chose them, why? Because they were the weak things of the world and God will use the weak things to bring glory to himself because his glory is paramount. It's everything. And so this is good news, not for one group, but for all the people. God did this for everybody. This is how he operates. Why do all the people need this good news? Why do, why do all, what is the, we, do you guys need good news? I need some good news today. More and more every day, I could use some good news. Well, what is the good news? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. City of David, that's, that's an allusion to Bethlehem where King David was born. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. In Micah, where the, the Savior's birth is prophesied, it says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitfulness. And so this was a very fertile region. There was a surplus of food that was produced here in this area uh, where Bethlehem was. And the food that was grown there was taken to the front lines uh, of the Israelite army as they faced off against the Philistines or whomever. Historically, you know the story of Ruth, And Boaz, a lot of that figures into Bethlehem. Ruth was a foreigner who was a widow and uh, her deceased husband was from Bethlehem. And so Ruth travels with her mother-in-law, Naomi. They go to Bethlehem. There awaiting is this kinsman by the name of Boaz and a little romance emerges there. Boaz owns some fields. Ruth gleans in these fields. She comes after his workers and he instructs his guys, leave behind some grain for her so that she can take that grain and make bread, okay? And so this, it's a beautiful love story set in Bethlehem. And of course, Ruth figures into the lineage of King David, and not only David, but Christ. And so their bread plays a role throughout all of the stories of Bethlehem, and the name means the house of bread. But let me tell you something. Bethlehem did not become the house of bread truly until Jesus was born because he is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. And so what do these angels say? For you to, today is born in the city of David a, a what? A savior. A savior. He doesn't say a king. Oh, he is a king, but he's not a, he's not a traditional king, is he? He's a savior. What does a savior do? He saves. What is he saving us from? Our problems? Well, I think you can be saved and still have problems. I'm saved, I got all kinds of problems. I got all kinds of problems. Is he saving us from our meaninglessness? From our anxiety? From our lack of fulfillment? Well, no, those are are all byproducts of our real problem. He is coming to save us from our sin. From our sin. And in verse 12, it says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now watch this. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and here we've got this glimpse of worship, but not just any worship. This is the worship of heaven. It's the worship of heaven. This is the entire heavenly host. They fill the night sky, which now is scintillatingly bright. 
And they are engaging in what they are always doing in heaven, perpetually. They are worshiping. This is not like we worshiped together today. I love our worship team. I think they do a phenomenal job. No offense, worship team. I don't think you compare to what these guys are doing here. All right? These angels, they, they could teach us about worship. And they are going to town in worship. And we don't get a glimpse of this kind of worship in Scripture very often. The worship of heaven. Uh, I mean, almost never. You can go to Revelation 4 and 5. You see John there. He's transported spiritually via this vision up into the throne room of heaven. And he beholds the worship of heaven there. But this is not that. This is not a vision. This is heaven coming down. This is heaven coming to earth. Uh, and it must just shock the soul out of these shepherds. Can you imagine? They about wet their pants at the sight of one angel. And now you've got the heavenly multitude, the whole host. Every angel of heaven, uh, as far as we could tell, is right here. And the angels say, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the Latin, it's gloria in excelsis Deo. There is a proper theology here. Angels have a proper theology, right? Who gets the glory? God. Where is God? He's in the highest. What comes to man? Peace. Why? Because we need it. Where is man? He's on the earth. Where is that in relation to God? It's way, way, way below. God is far above. Man is below. He needs peace because he's down. Everything is in its proper place, but they say glory to God. Remember, the glory of God is his purpose for everything. It is his absolute focus. It is our focus in all of history. And it is the purpose of this good news, the glory of God. Uh, I bring good news, and the ultimate reason for this is the glory of God. You say, well, I thought the good news was that we are saved from our sin. Let me give you the gospel in context. The good news is that you are saved from your sin in order that you may bring glory to God. The greatest expression of worship is when a soul is saved from sin. That glorifies the Lord God. There is nothing more important in your life that you could possibly do than bring glory to God. It is your number one priority. Nothing else matters by comparison. I don't care if you're the first person on Mars, okay? I don't care if you cure cancer. I don't care if you invent a device that allows a husband to read his wife's mind, okay? <laughs> I would invest in that, by the way. But that is not to be compared with bringing glory to God. And then they speak of peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? Well, it's not the absence of problems. That's not what this is. This isn't, uh, this isn't peace and quiet. I'd settle for peace and quiet. I got four kids. A lot of you got a big noisy family. This time of year we sing that song, Silent Night. Some of you are like, I'd kill for a silent night right about now. Absolutely. <laughs> But this is peace. It's the greatest resolution to the greatest divide, the greatest conflict imaginable. It's peace with God. We described it as reconciliation between unrighteous man and righteous God. From the garden to now, there has been a war. Man has been at war with God. Folks, you don't want to be at war with God. That is not a war you can win. Okay, you don't overcome him by your might. You don't overcome him by your good works. Okay, you don't negotiate with God to win peace. There's no olive branch you bring into this because God is pure justice. Sin demands a sacrifice. The only one who can satisfy the righteous justice of a holy God is a holy God. 
And that is precisely what is happening on this night that the son of God is gonna come to earth, born a baby, that he might grow up and live a perfect life, go to Calvary in our stead and pay the price and satisfy the wrath that exists because of sin. That's the greatest gift of all and that is why there is glory in the highest to God. Why are these angels praising God? Because of the arrival of the one who is worthy at long last. There is a sacrifice that is worthy that can redeem man. Finally, peace can be extended and how is this peace extended? Well, it's not universal. It's not immediate just because Jesus is born. It's not like, well, Jesus is born. Now all of mankind has peace. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you might recall the King James here. You know, you, you, you just see if this sounds familiar. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Does this sound familiar? You might have that crocheted on a pillow somewhere. Huh? It's a little misleading. That's a little misleading. It's pretty, but it's misleading. I would say even the translation that we're reading right now can be a little misleading if you're not careful. Uh, Ours reads like this, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, that kind of makes it sound like if you just work at pleasing God, that you can earn peace. Well, this begs the question, how is God pleased? How does one please God? Does the scripture tell us what pleases God? It absolutely does. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith and faith alone is the only thing that pleases God. Not your position, not your accomplishment. And that's because the object of your faith is Jesus Christ and he's perfect. And so all he wants from you, as far as your eternity is concerned, is authentic faith in Christ Jesus. Now watch. We've had this phenomenal encounter, this exchange between heaven and earth and the sky which was once black as night became scintillatingly brilliant with the radiance of glory and now in an instant it's gone. Verse 15, when the angels went away From them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And this is number four in your notes. You gotta remember, God's plan initiates action. God's plan initiates action. There's an urgency here. Um, The phrase they said to one another, that that is in the Greek what's called the imperfect tense. It means that this is an action that has yet to be achieved. They're talking about it with an urgency. They're saying, we got to go. We got to do this. We got to get over there. We got to go right now. You might say, well, if it's so urgent, why why are they talking about it? Why are they just doing it? Well, because they're responsible and they've got a whole flock of sheep. And so they're talking through the logistics of this. They're saying, all right, who's going to watch the sheep? Because we got to go. We got to get over to Bethlehem. I mean, we gotta, it's a fur piece over there. There's a hike. We got to get up over that ridge to make it to Bethlehem because we got to go right now. See, there's an urgency. They're taking this very seriously. They're not just talking about it. Nobody's like, well, that was neat. <laughs> wow. Hey, what do you say we, 
we turn in, we get a good night's sleep, and in the morning we'll get up and we'll, we'll saunter over to Bethlehem and see if they're still there. You think they'll still be there in the morning, don't you? No. They're like, we gotta go. We got to go now. And in verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They went with haste. That indicates faith. They didn't blow this off. Uh, they, they made it a priority. That means they believed what they'd heard. They have faith. The Messiah has been born. They knew where he was because the angel told them. And so they went straight away. Faith produces works. That's what James says. Faith without works is dead, right? And verse 17, when they saw it, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They see Joseph, they see Mary, they see Jesus, they see the manger, just as the angel said. And when their faith is made sight, they don't keep it to themselves. They make it known. And we get a little taste here of the Great Commission. They go and they tell. They make it known. Uh, these, these, these humble, lowly uh, men of ill repute become the first evangelists of the New Testament. Isn't that something? They are articulating the gospel to the degree that it can be articulated. Now, is this, a, is this a complete gospel? Well, no, there's no cross yet, but there's a Christ. And so with the revelation that they've been given, they are sharing that. They see the hope of heaven in the birth of this baby, this Messiah, this, this Christ. And they have become convinced without a doubt this is the greatest news ever to hit mankind, and they can't keep it to themselves. You gotta know it. Everybody has gotta know it. And they share it far and wide. And here are the results in verse 18. And all who heard it wondered wondered at what the shepherds told them. The word wondered there is thomos in the Greek. Thomos, it means to marvel. It means to be amazed, okay? Now, this is not belief. They're marveling. This is causing a stir. It's causing interest. It's causing, causing a, uh, a bit of a mania, People are, are uh, fascinated, and so they, they, are, they are curious. They want to know more. They're not yet committed. They're not like the shepherds. It's not that kind of faith. They're marveling. It's like the, like the crowds that, follows, that follow Jesus in the Gospels. They'd follow him around, right? They, what are they looking for? They're just looking for more miracles. You know, hey, walk on water again. Hey, uh, you know, multiply some more fishes and loaves. Raise somebody from the dead. Heal the sick. Come on. Show us what you got, Jesus. That's the kind of mentality that we see right here. And, and, and they're just fascinated with the supernatural aspect of it. Are people like that today? Are there people in church circles today that just want a miracle? They just want to see something fantastic. They just want to be amazed. They want some new emotional high. They want some new experiential thing. They are preoccupied with that. That's not faith. They're not there yet. Faith is driven and motivated by your relationship to a real savior. It's more like what we read in verse 19. In the example of Mary, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is not thomas on the part of Mary. This is not mere amazement. She's, she's been in the loop for some time. She's processed this. She's been a believer in God's plan from the moment Gabriel appeared to her and said, you're gonna have a child who is the son of God. So what is she doing in this moment? 
This is contemplation. This is contemplation. Can you imagine what's going on in Mary's mind and heart right now? I mean, this is a girl, 13, 14 years old. She's a girl, but she's a mother. She's a mother. God has done this incredible thing. What must she be thinking? She's thinking, what happens next? What happens next? How do I raise him? How do I raise him? What is expected of me? What should I expect of him? Will he be like other children? He's the son of God. I mean, he's the Messiah. He's going to have a kingdom. When will that be? Will I be a part of it? How do I raise the son of God? Some of you are like, well, he's the son of God. How hard could it be? I mean, he's perfect. My kids are a hot mess. At least he's not going to disobey, you know? I mean, he could clean his room with the wave of a hand, you know? Not so fast. You remember the story about jo- Joseph and Mary and they're going to Jerusalem and, and, uh, and they go to the temple with a contingency and then they, they are leaving. They go back to Nazareth. They're about halfway back to Nazareth. They're like, wait a minute. Where's Jesus? Have we lost the son of God? You know, and they, they hightail it back to the temple and they find him. What's he been doing? He's teaching the teachers. And they're like, where have you been? And he's like, did you not know I would be about my father's business? You want to raise that kid? (laughs) No, she's got some difficult days in store. This is going to stretch her. Being the mother of God's son will be hard. And the hardest thing will be one day looking up at a cross Gazing at her crucified boy. There's a lot to ponder and contemplate in Mary. But that's the Christian life, you know? Initially, we have this experience, like these shepherds, where we're presented with this marvelous truth. And we receive it by faith, and there's great joy. And then in that joy, we go and we tell. We tell everybody we can think of. And then comes contemplation and pondering. And we think on the deeper things of God as we grow closer to him. And there's spiritual growth. And there's maturity. And then there's this. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this is number five in your notes. God's truth produces worship. His truth produces worship. Worship doesn't just happen in the big experience. It doesn't just happen when we're caught up in the moment. Worship is ongoing. It's throughout every facet of our daily life as believers. This is what we do. We are followers of the Almighty, which means we worship. We are people of truth. Truth produces worship. And these shepherds worship as they do what? As they return, they return. They go back to those pastures. They go back to the life of a shepherd. They go back to being a punchline, to being the brunt of scorn and mockery in their culture and society. And yet they worship because for them, After encountering the Christ, the world has not changed, but they have. 
There's something different about them now. And so they rejoice no matter what their circumstances are. They don't get to see an angel every day. They don't get to receive prophetic revelation every day. They don't get to be in the physical presence of the Messiah every day. But they're going to live out their faith every day because it's real. And they're going to rejoice. And the world's going to look at them as it looks at you and I. And it's going to say, what have you got to be so happy about? What is that? I don't understand. It's so foreign to me. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. You're just, you're just, you're just a nothing. You're just a failure. You are, you're just the bottom of the food chain. See, they don't know what you know. You know you're not a nothing. You're not a nothing. You're who God says you are. And God says you're a champion. You're a champion. You are a blood-bought born again, spirit indwelled, Christ empowered child of God who has a new name, who is alive, who is free, who is overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. And you are more than a conqueror. You are the righteousness of God. You are the light of the world. And God says to you, one day you're going to slip these surly bonds of earth and you're going to touch the face of God and he's going to say, my son, my daughter, you are not who the world says you are. You're who I say you are. I say you are mine and my word is final. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just give you glory for the power of your word. And it's amazing to think that what you revealed to those shepherds, you revealed to us through the scriptures, God, that you came and your coming through Jesus was good news for all people. That includes me. That includes every single soul in this room. I pray your blessing upon us in this season that we might know the power of what that means. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.